0: Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas, and I love trees. It's now the end of November, and fall is coming to a close. New England trees have pretty much all dropped their leaves, and we're finally starting to get the first signs of winter weather. Which is crazy, it's been a rather mild month while many other parts of the country have already gotten, like, a ton of snow. It's fine, I'm not bitter. Anyway, winter is often hard for a lot of people because it's usually very cold and certainly very dark, especially up north. And that's why, in winter, we as humans have often turned to evergreens for reverence and worship and just plain emotional support. That's right, folks. If you've ever looked at your Christmas tree or pines on the street during winter and felt some form of comfort, you have an emotional support tree. I'm sorry, but you cannot take it on airplanes with you. But there is a tree that you might see way up north that has needles and cones just like pines and spruces and firs, but in the fall its needles turn yellow and right now as winter takes hold of the land its branches are naked and bare. The tree I am talking about is called the larch, and surely you may be wondering what significance humans give a needle tree that doesn't stay green all winter. We're going to look into our curious interpretations of this phenomenon as well as why the Larch does what it does in the first place. Is it simply the rebellious teen of the Pine family, or does it know something that the other conifers don't? As I hinted at in the intro, larches are in the pine family. This makes it slightly excusable for non-tree people to mistakenly call them pines, as I'm sure many have looked at a dormant larch in the winter and thought or said, what's wrong with that pine? Nothing's wrong, it's just going through some stuff, okay? Within the pine family, pinaceae, you'll also find spruces, hemlocks, firs, douglas firs, and a few more trees with needles and cones. And among these the larch is most closely related to douglas firs which kind of makes sense considering how unusual those trees are as well just consider that corner of the pine family the oddballs they get their own table at thanksgiving the larch specifically belongs to its own genus in the pine family called laryx and there's an interesting story as to how it got its name according to vitruvius a famous roman architect Caesar took his armies into the Alpine regions of modern-day northern Italy for some conquering and expanding of territory. Somewhere north of the River Po, he came across a fortified town called Larinium that he was having a little trouble conquering. His method of dealing with the situation was to pile brushwood around their main defense tower, which was made of wood, and burn it down. But after the brush pile had all been burned away, Caesar's army was discouraged to discover that this wooden defense tower had not been affected by the fire whatsoever. So instead, they simply built massive palisades, or siege walls, and frightened the town into surrendering. But once they surrendered, Caesar had to ask, what on earth kind of wood is that tower made from? And the townspeople just pointed to the trees that grew all around them in these mountains, which Caesar then named after the town of Larinium, calling them Larix, which later became Larch. This is not the only species of Larch, but there aren't a ton, somewhere around 10 species that span across the northern hemisphere. The European Larch that appeared in this story, Larix decidua, is only found high up in the mountains, primarily the Alps, but also in the Carpathians of Central and Eastern Europe. Now, if you're among my audience in the eastern United States and don't recognize the name larch, you may know it by a different name. Larix laricina, which is found growing in the upper Midwest, Northeast, most of Canada, and even interior Alaska, is sometimes called the eastern larch, but is more often referred to as the tamarack, or tamarack pine. Its range is quite diverse, it extends across the northern taiga, but in its more southern forests in the United States, it is found growing in swampy locations. There's a couple more species growing in North America, the Western Larch and the Subalpine Larch. These two trees generally share the same region, the northern U.S. Rockies and the Cascade Range of the Pacific Northwest, but the Western Larch is a quote-unquote lower elevation tree, only growing up to around 6,000 feet or 1,800 meters in elevation, while the subalpine larch helps define the tree line with its forest growing as high as 9,000 feet or 2,700 meters. Over in Asia, specifically in Siberia, you'll find the Siberian larch as well as the Dahurian larch. The Dahurian larch is really cool because of how much of Siberia its trees are found in. And considering how utterly massive Siberia is, the Dahurian Larch is thought to be one of the most widespread trees in the world by sheer land area. It's also the most northern tree in the world. There's a grove of Dahurian Larches called the Lokunsky Grove that is further north in Siberia than the most northern point of Alaska. Farther in East Asia, there's the Japanese Larch, found in the mountains of central Japan as well as two Chinese larches, found in various mountain ranges across China. There's also the Himalayan larch, which is the furthest south of all the larches, but the Himalayan mountains are quite tall and cold and inhospitable, which ultimately fits the theme. I'm sure you've noticed this theme of where larches grow, either really far north or high up in the mountains, you know, places where very few things grow and this has a lot to do with why the larch is the way it is. When you picture a larch, you can go ahead and picture some kind of pine, a rather pyramidal-shaped tree with needles and cones. Members of the pine family are rather predictable, but something I've tried to stress any time I talk about needle trees is that they are actually pretty easy to tell apart based on how the needles attach themselves to the twigs. Pine needles grow in these little bundles with papery sheaths at the base. Spruce needles grow solitarily from little woody pegs. Hemlocks are attached by little floss-like strings, yada yada yada. On larches, there are these mm, mini twigs growing from the, we'll call them main twigs. We actually call these spur shoots. Larch needles are short and grow in clusters of 20 to 30 from the ends of these spur shoots. So along the twigs, you'll see these little bursts of needle clusters. Larch cones are very small and can be easy to miss. They're usually less than an inch or around two centimeters long. And while we often associate cones with fall, since that's when they usually drop, they are honestly something to really behold in the spring when they're coming in. There are two different types of cones, what we call male cones that release pollen, and female cones that take in pollen and produce seeds. Male cones are smaller, but they are a bright yellow color, while female cones are often a vibrant shade of pinkish red as they come in, making it look like a pine tree that has flowers. Like I said, these things are small, so they're easy to miss, yet they're so rewarding to catch a glimpse of. Larch trees can vary widely in how large they get, based on how harsh the conditions are in which they live. In more tolerable conditions toward the southern extent of their ranges, some larches can grow over 100 feet or 30 meters tall, but when they grow high up in the mountains or way up north with poor soil and cold, dark conditions, their growth form ends up quite stunted in appearance, usually not exceeding 20 feet or 6 meters in height. At this point, you're probably wondering, why do these trees grow in such terrible places? They're so far north, or so high up, where it gets very cold. Even in the southern extent of their range in North America, they prefer to grow in acidic bogs where the substrate or soil composition is colder because of the presence of water. And the answer is, because they can, while other trees can't. This is why larches drop their needles in the fall. The reason why any plant is deciduous and drops its leaves is to conserve energy in harsh conditions. Broadleaf trees in tropical latitudes are evergreen because the climate is awesome for growth all year long, but in areas that have dry seasons, they may drop their leaves to conserve water. The broadleaf trees in our temperate zones, the oaks and elms of North America and Eurasia, drop their leaves so they can survive the cold and dark of winter. Needle trees, like pines and spruces, can live in those same temperate regions and not drop their leaves because needles have a much smaller surface area, so they don't lose as much water as easily and don't need as many nutrients. But if a needle tree were to drop its needles and conserve all that energy, then they would be able to survive in even harsher conditions farther north and higher up. There's less competition, where few other things can survive, right? You may think of the places where the Larch lives as remote and completely inhospitable otherwise, but if these trees can live in those places, well then humans can too. Let's talk about Siberia. Siberia is that long section of Russia that is technically part of the Asian continent despite Russia being considered a European country. You may have different ideas about what Siberia is like, depending on how much you know about it. Perhaps you picture a vast stretch of frozen wasteland. You know, when Russia was the communist USSR, Siberia was that harsh, perennially cold place that comrades got sent off to when they were naughty. But thanks to the larch, Siberia has extensive woodlands. And believe it or not, it also has people who live there of their own volition. The indigenous background of peoples from northern Asia is complex, and I don't have the time or proper educational background to get too, too deep into things. So today, we are talking about the Tungusic or Evenk people specifically. They are thought to have originated in northeast China, and that's where most of them live today. But people who speak some form of the Tungusic language group have historically spanned across Mongolia and Siberia. It is these peoples who have, for some time, lived way up north among the Dahurian Larch. For those groups who live in the most northern extent of their people's range, the Larch is among the largest forms of life that exists near them. And because of this, it is the larch that serves as the world tree in their mythology, similar to how the ash is commonly considered to be the world tree called Yggdrasil in Norse mythology. It's a cosmological concept explaining how our world is connected to other worlds, the worlds of spirits and gods, the heavens high up in the sky, where only something as tall as the larch can reach. In order to hone their connection with the spirits, shamans of their faith apparently spend a lot of time near larches, crafting practical tools and ceremonial items out of its wood. In 1894, there was a series of interestingly carved pieces of larch wood that were pulled out of a swamp in central Russia, near where the border between Europe and Asia is considered to be. These chunks were assembled to form what at some point was an over 17-foot-long hunk of wood with six faces carved into it and geometric markings that have yet to be successfully interpreted. Called the Shigir Idol, this totem was radiocarbon dated to be over 11,000 years old, making it the oldest wooden monumental sculpture in the world. For reference, it's twice as old as the Egyptian pyramids, and would have been constructed just after the end of the last major ice age. You remember the humans in the animated ice age movies? Those are the people who made this sculpture. Not those people specifically, but the representation of what people were like at that time. You get it. Archaeologists are unsure what purpose this idol served exactly. Considering that indigenous peoples in that region place so much significance on the larch, perhaps it yields some representation of their interpretation of the divine, like a symbol of a god to be worshipped. Other theories suggest that the multiple faces represent ancestry and a tracing of lineage for a specific family or clan. But ultimately, we don't know. What we can surmise is that the larch earned its cultural significance from its practical use. There's few other trees growing where the larch grows in some cases, and so few other opportunities to find wood, a resource whose uses transcend the unique characteristics of individual species. Wood gives us fire and shelter, and so many other things, and so the only thing around that gives us wood is going to be considered pretty important. That importance is carried over in Europe, where we see the larch growing high up in the Alps, Clearly, people tough it out alongside these trees, as evidenced by the story of Caesar coming to Larinium in northern Italy. European trees often have some association with various aspects of the fae and magic, and larchwood is allegedly something that has powers of protection against enchantment, the idea of which I have a lot of thoughts about. First off, surprise! It's another tree with protection symbolism representations of protection due to its usefulness as shelter is simply a part of the starter pack for being a tree. But second, I can kind of see where the protection against enchantment specifically comes from. We've thoroughly established that the Larch is special for being able to withstand uniquely harsh conditions, so it kind of makes sense that it would be seen as being able to withstand the influence of outside magic. Not sure if that's the logic, but I can get behind it. Most importantly though, we have to take a big grain of salt whenever I bring up what individual trees in Europe represent in regards to magical abilities, and I'm not just talking about whether or not you believe in aspects of the natural world having magical powers. I'm talking about the difficulty in knowing what early Europeans, especially those of Celtic and Gaulish origins, actually believed how much truth has actually been preserved since Romans spread their influence across the continent, how much modern writing about trees and magic can be sourced back to Celtic and Gaulish people, and how much has been simply influenced by a cultist like Aleister Crowley. I don't know, but I include all of this anyway with an asterisk because it is interesting to muse over. Back over here in North America larches have historically served a number of purposes to various native tribes. Eastern groups found that the stringy tendrils that grow off the roots are quite tough and have been used as fibers for sewing together pieces of birch bark canoes. Medicinally, the sap was used to treat cuts as well as chewed to help with sore throats. Teas were made from the inner bark to also aid with sore throats and coughs. Leaves and stems were used externally to treat arthritis and internally to promote healthy gut flora. And while older folk remedies are often at odds with the rigorous expectations set by Western medicine, there is actually a lot of proven potential when it comes to the healing ability of larches. For one thing, they contain a chemical that is super high in fiber and is recognized by the FDA as being a valid food source. But most importantly, larches have the potential to treat Alzheimer's disease. A neurological study published in the 90s presented the likelihood that excessive ammonia exposure to the brain could be a causative factor for Alzheimer's. Ammonia is something that is produced in our bodies naturally as a byproduct of the normal processes our bodies undergo as bodies. Our kidneys are supposed to filter that bad stuff out. That's what they're there for. But sometimes people's bodies produce too much ammonia, or their kidneys don't work right, and this is something that could be causing the onset of Alzheimer's. Larches produce these fatty acid chains that have been shown to decrease ammonia production in our bodies and help slow our body's absorption of ammonia so that our kidneys have more time to filter it out. Less ammonia could very well mean less Alzheimer's. Scientists are researching whether or not the larch can provide the help we've been needing on that front. But at the end of the day, a tree is still just a tree, and one big purpose trees serve is to be planted in our communities to make our lives more enjoyable. Larches have beautiful fall foliage with their needles turning a brilliant golden hue, but they're not especially attractive when they're naked through the winter months even more so than other deciduous trees. Because of that, larches are not a commonly chosen tree for planting along roadsides or in parks. One place we do see larches planted is in cemeteries. This was a relatively common practice in the United States around the time of the Civil War and prior, thanks to symbolism that you might expect. While evergreen trees often represent everlasting life or life-conquering death as they survive the dormant months of winter, it only makes sense that a needle tree that loses its leaves is seen to represent death. But at the same time, the larch returning to its glorious state of life in the spring also gives it a connection to rebirth. Perhaps this is another reason people from rugged northern climates also revere the larch. Despite its lost battle against winter and its sad appearance without needles that should otherwise persist, there is something important to learn from its decision. There will come a time where we need rest. Sometimes life throws us some harsh conditions, and we'll need to drop something we consider important in order to brace for them. It may feel like death, and it might make us feel ugly. But just like for the larch, our spring will come, and we will experience the rebirth and regrowth that makes those hard decisions worth it. History, symbolism, inspiration, and medicine aside, I will always love the larch as one of the most unexpectedly beautiful fall trees. When I was fresh out of college, I worked as a plant ecologist in northern Wisconsin. For those of you unfamiliar with the region, the Northwoods are home to thousands of lakes, and some incredible wetlands between them. Some of the most special places I got to work in were called sphagnum bogs, places that would otherwise be a pond were not for layers of sphagnum moss multiple feet thick. We worked in primarily wooded sections of sphagnum bogs, but the only trees you'd see there were spindly black spruce and eastern larch. My happy place, the Fortress of Comfort inside my head, is a cool October day in a Wisconsin swamp. The breeze is blowing gently, just enough to make the larches sway and send their yellow needles cascading softly down above my head. It wasn't cold that day, but it looked and felt like it was snowing. It was the larch that made this place for me. The next episode of My Favorite Trees is going to be very special, as I am going to have my very first guest on this podcast. I've been in touch with the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, who are excited to talk about their Tree Tenders program. Look forward to December 13th, when I'll be speaking with the director of this program about planting trees in urban neighborhoods, the work they've been involved in, and how you can get involved in planting trees yourself. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by Brit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees or on Instagram at treepodcast. And if you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug.